Welcome to Mind Tricks Radio, where we'll explore contemporary topics in psychology through interviewing creative and innovative thinkers in the field. I'm your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan. Thanks for tuning in. We're here today with Dr. Leslie Becker-Phelps, a clinical psychologist who is dedicated to helping people understand themselves and what they need to do to become emotionally and psychologically healthy. She has authored Bouncing Back from Rejection and Insecure in Love, and she has a Psychology Today blog called Making Change. She also has a YouTube channel. She treats individuals and couples in her clinical practice located in New Jersey. She is on the medical staff of Robert Wood Johnson University Hospital Somerset in Somerville, New Jersey. Leslie, welcome to the show. Thanks, Aaron. I really appreciate you inviting me on. This is a really exciting topic, and I know you've recently finished this new book, Bouncing Back from Rejection, which I'm hoping will be a bestseller very soon. It's a super fun and exciting book to read. I very much enjoyed it. And we will be talking about this concept of rejection and the reasons why you wrote this book and maybe to get sort of a primer on the subject and talk a little bit about what's inside the book. So to begin with, I would love to start by just hearing a little bit about you as a person and a professional and how you got into this field. Oh, thanks. Um, well, you know, I was, there's a couple of different ways that I think about how I got into the field. There's me as a therapist doing therapy, and then there's me with the interest I have in attachment and what kind of led to the book. And clearly at some point they came together. I was always interested in helping people. I mean, who doesn't like to help people, right? And I thought when I was younger, maybe I would like, like to teach, but I'm really more of a one-on-one -on -one or very small group kind of person. So couldn't imagine teaching, maybe tutoring, but that didn't really seem like a life path. And then when I was in high school, I became involved in a program where they trained high school students to be on a hotline. Wow. Um, which actually these days, I think we would call a warm line because it was mostly if people just were struggling or needed someone to talk to, we were trained to be able to talk with them. And so I did that and I really liked that. And then I went off to college. I took psychology classes. It all kind of fit for me. Um, and I was on that track. So that's that piece of it. Mm -hmm. But the other piece that took a little longer to come together was through my childhood, I loved animals, all kinds of animals. When I was a kid, I remember I had all these books and I'd line up all the animal books and make sure <laughs> I read them all. And I'd grill myself on the different information about them. And I don't know if you remember, but back in the day, Jane Goodall was very popular in schools. Yeah. They would bring in, do you remember? They'd like sure. bring in uh, videos or movies of her. She, she was gorillas or chimpanzees. Yep. 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 She was working. Yeah. With the gorillas. Gorillas. So yeah. She would go out. And she would work in their natural habitat. And I wanted to be an ethologist like her. And an ethology is the study of animals in their natural habitat. Mm -hmm. So I really, I really took to that. But, you know, life goes on. I end up going into psychology. But then later I worked, actually, when I think about it now, I, I worked on an Indian reservation. Actually, it was, it was a wonderful experience. And I worked with uh, families. I went out to schools, worked with the children there. But I saw a lot of transgenerational trauma. Years after that, I was the clinical director of a, um, a hospital-based 
trauma program. So I worked with women with histories of severe physical, sexual, and emotional abuse, which was very challenging, but very rewarding. But this was, was central. So when I left that position, because we ended up uh, adopting identical twin boys, I didn't really, mm. like, it was enough for me to have a private practice and do that, yeah, didn't sure. to run the program too. But the day came when I wanted to do something else. And so I was exploring, what do I want to do? And I realized I really had the question of what makes it so difficult for people to change? And I think back on these women who were in so much pain and they wanted to change so much, they couldn't quite get out of that trauma mode, right? They couldn't do it. I was like, what's going on? And so I started to do a lot of reading across all kinds of literature and people and what makes people change or not change or whatever. And it was kind of like um, studying people in the natural environment, which just makes, makes me think of the ethology piece, mm -hmm. and really came to the understanding of attachment theory, which was developed out of looking at mammals, you know, and, and so that all ties in. And the idea that w as human beings, we need to connect, it's wired into us to uh, help us both be safe and feel safe. And it's, it's, a foundational way of how we relate to ourselves and other people. So that is what um, my first book, Insecure in Love, and my book, Bouncing Back from Rejection, they're, they're based in that. So that comes out of a really, a broad understanding of who we are as human beings and mammals even. So that's kind of how I come to this. Yeah. So that makes this whole lot of sense that your interest in attachment would naturally lend itself to this concept of rejection. And we're going to talk a little bit about attachment in a bit, because that's so important, I think, to what you're writing about and what you're talking about. But rejection specifically, why did you decide to write about this this time? I can't answer that question without referencing attachment, because uh -huh. as, as human, again, as human beings, we are wired to need connection, right? So what's a central challenge to, you know, needing connection is, oh, my gosh, what if I get rejected? What if I'm not good enough? Yeah. And so everybody experiences rejection, struggles with rejection, but when you have a really deep struggle with it, it's fundamental to your experience. It's, it can really rock your life in a not good way. So there's, there's that just generally speaking. And frankly, these days we're going through some major turmoil in the world for yeah. a number of years. And I think that it became clear to me how much people are struggling on many levels and rejection is one of them. Yeah. So let's talk about in your clinical practice and when you see patients and you see people struggling with rejection, how does that usually manifest itself? Like what do people usually come in with? What are typical scenarios where people you're seeing are dealing with rejection at that core level? I see it in almost, almost everybody to some degree. And it could be someone coming in and in a sense, rejecting themselves. They have all this self-doubt or self-loathing or struggling within themselves. And that's all about they're not good enough, right? So they're feeling rejected within themselves. They're fearing rejection from others. So maybe they're not enrolling in school like they want to, or they're not trying to do something extra, do something at work because they're afraid of being rejected. Um, they're not speaking out. They're not being assertive in their relationships. Maybe they just go along with whatever anybody says because they're afraid if they say their piece, they'll be rejected. And that's it in friendships, or it could be just in intimate relationships, right? They, they're going to just tell that guy or that girl, you know, whatever they want to hear so that they can feel accepted or, you know, not be rejected. So I see it across the board in, in work, at home, 
socially? Well, you talk a little bit about the differentiating normal rejection from more of a dysfunctional level of rejection, because I think most people can relate to feeling like they messed up on something or somebody didn't accept them, a relationship ended or friends don't like them as much as they'd like them to. Everybody experiences that to some degree. So what are some of the indicators that somebody is functioning from more of a dysfunctional type of rejection? So I kind of like to think of it as um, kind of a healthier state, a healthier response versus, you know, less healthy as opposed to abnormal, which because then it makes you feel not okay about you. So when you are responding in a way that's kind of commensurate with what's going on, it seems in keeping with it. So um, you're supposed to get together with your friend and it slips their mind and they don't show up. And generally speaking, they're there for you. They're, you know, it's not like a regular thing. They, they don't show up. And you're like, oh, that hurt. That didn't feel good. Okay. Mm-hmm. Then there's, oh my gosh, they don't like me. They've been waiting to do this for years and they're never going to talk to me again. What did I do wrong? Now that's mm-hmm. out of proportion, especially if it's somebody who's been, um, you know, been supportive and, and a really good friend up to that point. So you can see when it's out of proportion to the situation, then we're getting into the more unhealthy zone. Some ways that you see that are just kind of exaggerating, you know, having an exaggerated response, or maybe you're just very guarded against it. You're always looking, you realize you're always like looking for when somebody's going to let you down or reject you, you know, that kind of thing. So that's on the side of if you're very anxious, right? So you might be doing those things. And there's some people who protect themselves, but just from if you're distant, then you can't get hurt so much, right? So then maybe they're rejected and they're like, I don't care. You know, it doesn't really matter to me. You've heard people say that, right? That doesn't matter. I don't care what people think. Well, how many of us really don't care what other people think of us? I mean, maybe it's not, you're not so care so much that it's going to stop you in the tracks, but to really not care. I mean, again, we're social beings. So we are wired to want to cooperate, to want to get along. Um, So that's another way you might see a rejection, a sensitivity to rejection is someone who just turns it into like, oh, it doesn't matter. Or they just rely on themselves so they don't have a need for other people. And that's also a rejection sensitivity. You're not seeing it because they make it invisible in that way. Yeah. yeah. So it sounds like on the one hand, the overreaction is real obvious. Somebody gets intensely angry or thinks that everybody hates them where that's it's not, not really a rational response strong emotional reaction that's way stronger than what somebody would normally expect. That's the one side. And the other side, if somebody would say like, boy, you really don't seem like you're bothered at all about something that would normally kind of bother somebody that might be an indicator on the other side of that. Exactly. And, and actually I left out probably one of the most common ones, which is someone who just is bending over backwards, trying to find a way for rejection to not happen. So this is the person who was so extra nice. And I, I don't want to knock being nice. It's good to be nice. But someone who just, you're like, wow, it's like over the top nice. Or they're over the top with trying to earn money or with prestige. Anything that will earn them, people liking them. And so they're trying to create a barrier so that they won't be rejected or that they're trying to like almost like um, earn acceptance, right? Yeah. The, the opposite of rejection. So there's that piece in there too. So... Those are some of the things that might suggest a person is very sensitive to rejection and to take a look at that. 
And I know that you talk about these things coming from attachment. We started out talking about that a little bit in the beginning. And we've spoken about attachment in this podcast on several podcasts. It's a, such an important topic. It underlies just about everything for most right. things. So let's just do a, another primer here. I think it's always useful to do it. Tell us about maybe where attachment comes from in childhood and upbringing and what kinds of attachment styles and dynamics might lead somebody to have less functional reactions to rejection. Sure. When, and the other way around as well, more functional ones. I like to first remind people that it's based in our biology. Okay. So we are wired to connect and that's important because sometimes we're quick to say, oh, you know, somebody was treated poorly and that's why they have insecure attachment. Sometimes there's a wiring issue. So we don't want to forget that there are physical things that can make it more difficult. Or sometimes there's a mismatch between temperament of a child and a parent. It's not like the child was abused, but you know, there may be some difficulty. So we don't want to forget those things. So that said, people are wired to attach, to connect. So you have an infant and for the infant to be safe in the world, they need a caretaker. And so the child connects to the caretaker and the caretaker has to have a connection to the child so that they are committed to taking care of them. So there's the physical staying safe. And then it's also wired in emotionally for the child to feel safe. And this is part of helping the brain develop. So again, we're going to go back to the neurological piece, not just the social piece, is that you're, it's helping the child develop their brain and be able to feel safe. Very quick, not even a primer, just a reference to, there's something called polyvagal theory. It's, it's an interesting theory by Stephen Porges, and he talks about how we have the vagus nerve, but actually there's two nerves. So there's one that when we are in a threat state, it is the fighter, that's the basis of fight or flight. Mm -hmm. And then when we're in a safety, like a safe environment or we feel safe, then this is the um, like friend and befriend or, you know, tend and befriend, sorry. And it's just, when you look at somebody, you feel safe, your guard goes down and you feel close, right? And then when you're doing that, when you're in that space, if you can live in that space, you tend to feel good. It's a sense of well-being you get. And so you feel positive about yourself. You feel positive about your relationship. And if I could switch back now to attachment, you have a secure attachment with your caregiver. Okay. Um, actually, I misspoke, so I want to correct myself. The dorsal vagal response is when someone is so traumatized that they become immobilized. It's when animals look dead, they just drop. That's the immobilized. The uh, fight or flight is more when your sympathetic nervous system kicks in. Got I don't it. want you to learn all of this. What I'm basically trying to say is our attachment system is so wired to how we function. And so later when we talk about how do you help people, we've got to get to that neurological and biological wiring. As you're growing up and you have experiences, if you have experiences where your caregiver is attuned to you, when you feel safe, you develop a secure attachment. As I said, you feel good about yourself. You feel good about the other people. But if you don't, if things don't go well, you can develop what we call insecure attachment. The way that I like to think about this is developing a model of how you think about yourself and a model of how you think about others. So in a secure attachment, the model of thinking about the others is they're available to me. In the insecure place, 
I'm in distress, where do I go? I look to my caregiver, if you're a child, and either they're hostile towards me or they're just not available or they're inconsistent. I don't feel like I can really rely on them. So your model of others is I can't rely on other people to help me. When you're feeling threat, your model of self is, I don't feel okay about myself. There's something wrong with me. Like I can't take care of me. And so now you're gonna be all anxious. So those are, that's the basis of attachment. That would be somebody who's insecurely attached. In childhood then people are developing a secure or an insecure attachment based on how things go with their caregivers. Right. And so presumably a secure sense of attachment is those caregivers are there for the person the way they expect them and need to th them to be. And so they feel safe. And as you were saying, the insecure ones, children are not feeling safe because they don't know whether they can count on the caregiver being there. And so their model of themselves and the model of others and their safety in those roles is challenged by that. Mm -hmm. So how then does this sort of play out with this concept of rejection and the way that people react to rejection as adults? So what we develop, the attachments that we develop as a child follows us into adulthood. So if you are someone whose model of self is that you feel unworthy, unworthy, flawed, inadequate, deficient, unlovable, there's different ways people kind of relate to the concept, but somewhere in there, then you walk around the world feeling not okay. You're going to be more sensitive to rejection because you're going to expect it. Of course you would expect rejection if you felt all that about yourself, you believe right. that about yourself, right? Right. So you're looking for it. And so you're gonna see it all over the place. Also, you're gonna, because you're expecting other people to reject you, you're gonna to want to do things to try to make that not happen. Now, sometimes people who, who walk around this way, they believe other people are good and they're gonna be there for them or they'll, they'll be there, they're emotionally available, but maybe not for them. They would be there for me, but if they really knew who I was, then they're not going to be there, of course, because I'm unworthy. In that situation, they're going to, they bend over backwards to try to earn people's attention, their affection, their acceptance. They become preoccupied with this. They're going to do everything they can to not get rejected because they don't want to validate that worst fear about themselves as being this rejectable person. Exactly. And yeah. we call that, there's a name for that style, which is preoccupied attachment. It's an anxious attachment style and they're preoccupied with getting the acceptance and caring. And so for them, you can see how they would be particularly sensitive to rejection, both rejection from the other people, but also they're constantly rejecting themselves. It's kind of baked in. Yeah. So there's a fear of being rejected while you're in the relationships and that will lead to behaviors that does everything that the person can to try not to get rejected. As you said, achieving mm -hmm. as much as you can, giving as much as you can, not speaking up. And then let's say a breakup happens, somebody's breaks up. And what would be the difference between a person with a secure attachment and an insecure attachment would frame the breakup in from their view of themselves and others. Sure. I will give you three versions, one healthy version, secure attachment version, and two insecure attachment versions. Great. Okay. So the healthy attachment version is, um, oh my gosh, that hurts so much. I, you know, I really care. I really cared about him. 
oh, I feel miserable. Maybe I, um, you know, curl up on this couch and I cry a little bit, but I call some friends and they talk me through it. And I know it makes me feel good to go out for a walk. So I go out for a walk, even though I'm not really into it, but I'll do it anyway. And I get myself through and I start engaging in things that make me feel good. And I work my way out of feeling rejected and hurt because I know that as much as it hurts, I'm still a worthy person. I am still a lovable person. I'm not feeling loved at the moment, but I'm a lovable person and a worthy person. So that's the healthy response. So this isn't happening because I'm a horrible person. So of course I'm being rejected. It's happening for any number of reasons, but it's not because of me not being worthy of being in a relationship with somebody. Exactly. It's not a statement of you as a human being. Similarly, this isn't happening because nobody would ever love me and there's something wrong with everybody else out there in the world. They're not capable of ever meeting my need in a relationship. This particular situation with this particular person, there may be an issue, but it's not a, a larger issue. That is a wonderful addition. Absolutely. So in actually, actually in the book, uh, my book that I wrote, as well as just in general, when I work with people, I go back and forth always between how you relate to yourself and how you relate to others. So yeah. what you're saying is right on. Yeah. Right? So you, you have a, a good estimation of what's going on with other people as well as you. All right. How about this insecure ones? Okay. So we have the anxious response and the anxious response. This is the person who as we've talked about, is preoccupied, who um, feels like there's something wrong with them and they have to earn love, right? So their response, there's different ways they could respond if they have that style. They might get just really angry. How could they could be like defensive around it? You know, how could he do that and start maybe lashing out at the person or be really needy? They start call, call them and text them and they won't let go. How could you do this? You know, we can make this work, those kinds of things. But they keep protesting against, which by the way, is a, a term in attachment theory, protesting. They're protesting against the rejection. because so there's all kinds of ways they'll protest or it totally doesn't work. Then they collapse into themselves. Woe is me. I am miserable. I knew it. I'm a horrible human being. And they really take a nosedive into depression and they don't really want to talk to anyone. Or if they talk to their friends, they don't believe anybody that they're okay as a person yeah. because look, that was proof. I'm rejected. That's because I'm not okay. Right. So they kind of dive into that. They, they're not able to grab onto something that helps them work their way out of it, or they will eventually, but it takes a long time because they lose the sense of themselves as being okay, or they never really had it, perhaps. They feel like it's a statement about them as a human being. So that's one of the insecure attachment responses. Yeah, I think there's a lot of people, a lot of us can relate to that. And very importantly, all of this is not like an on off, yes, no. Um, so you may have some trouble, but have ways that have healthy ways to work yourself out. Right. Well, and that's, I mean, what you're talking about is very common to see in the therapy office. One that you may see less often in the therapy office, but, but is nonetheless out there is, as we've talked about before, the person who is more avoidant yeah. or dismissing is, I didn't really like them anyway. It wasn't really a big deal. They didn't really add much to my life. And that's just great. I'm, I'm free to go meet other people. <laughs> You know, th yeah. those kinds of responses, which also, you know, that's showing a, if they're really believing their own line, it's showing a lack of connection because of course it hurts when someone we care about rejects us or there's a loss, you know, let's forget active rejection. Somebody dies, you know, it's a loss. When you have a loss, it hurts. So if the person's really coming at it as well, I, I don't need people anyway, 
you know, that's a different kind of insecure attachment. I'd like to move on a little bit. You spend quite a bit of time in your book talking about this concept of STEAM, which are ways that you discuss of looking at moving past feelings of rejection through what you call compassionate self-awareness. And STEAM stands for sensations, thoughts, emotions, actions, and mentalizing. So let's move briefly through those. Maybe you could tell us a little bit about what you do with patients and how the book supports this process through working through the rejection. You know, in therapy, I think all kinds of therapy, we, we get to know ourselves better. It's developing some kind of self-awareness. That's really important because we act out of our attachment styles. We act out actually a lot of things unconsciously, but we just kind of live in our attachment styles. We're, we're acting on them, but we're not necessarily seeing it. So in order to make a change, it helps a lot for us to be able to see what's going on, to be able to relate to what's going on, because only by bringing it into our consciousness and then being able to relate to it, learning to relate to it in a different way, can we start to make changes. So increasing self-awareness is important. And I talk about compassionate self-awareness because you can be very self-aware, but you can do it critically. Like the more you get to know yourself, you can find more and more things that you hate. That's right. not really helping. Yeah. So. The compassion, it is an important piece of it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and that, that ties into the safety system for you to be able to feel safe within yourself. That's the attachment, the safety system. So STEAM is about developing a compassionate self-awareness, relating to yourself in a compassionate way. And I use STEAM because to say to be self-aware is kind of a vague thing. Like, what does that mean? Like, in what ways? And the more specific we could be, then the richer narrative we can develop for ourselves, the more deeply we can understand ourselves. And the more deeply we can understand ourselves, the more empathy we can have and the more compassion. So all of that said, the essence theme is for sensations. And again, this ties into what I was trying to explain very briefly earlier, which is that attachment is biologically wired in. It is based in our brain, in our biology, and so it's based in our bodies and becoming self-aware. Then it's very important to become more aware of our physical sensations, not just our thoughts. And a lot of our, sometimes we can have thoughts and they're so totally separate from our physical experience that that's not helpful. So we want to get to know our physical experience. That's sensations. That's where you ask yourself, what do I sense or what do I physically feel in my body? So is this, is the point of this becoming more aware that I am feeling rejected. I just can't put words to it. I don't really understand what's going on. So understanding that I'm having these physical sensations inside me as an indication that something's going on. So I need to start with that. So yeah, it does. A, actually, it's amazing. It does a lot of things that become more aware of your sensations. It's just what you said. That was a perfect point. Like you can, if you're not sure what's happening, if you get to focus on your physical awareness, it's amazing how that helps us become more aware of emotionally what you're, we're feeling. Sometimes people just, they're like, I don't feel anything or I'm numb, right? You know, more of a numbness kind of thing. And then you focus on your body and you start to realize, well, you know what? I do feel a churning in my stomach. Okay. Now we can start to focus on that. Also, if somebody is really upset, they're all over the place. When you focus on your body, it helps you feel less. It's kind of strange, almost paradoxical. It, it makes you feel less all over the place because it gives you a place to focus in a physical way sometimes for people to portal into other levels of their experience or other domains of experience. 
So how about thoughts? We all have thoughts going through our heads all the time. So, but just because you have the thoughts doesn't mean you're necessarily fully aware of them. So this is to be aware of your thoughts. So to be able to reflect on your thoughts, to see your thoughts. And then you can begin to question your thoughts. Just because you have a thought doesn't mean it's true. And it doesn't mean you really believe it. And that's the part that sometimes people don't realize. They don't realize that just because they had the thought doesn't mean they believe it. It just may be thoughts that were going through your head. And so you can learn to question it. You talk about some interesting types of thinking that I think would help to spend a few minutes on. What's emotional thinking? So back to our biology, and you see, I go back and forth between this stuff all the time. Yeah. But back to our biology, when you're really emotional, if we were to um, do a scan, the feeling parts of your brain are all lit up. The thinking part of your brain, your prefrontal cortex, that part in your forehead, then kind of towards that end, that literally goes dim in the scanners. So you're not thinking clearly when you're emotional. And then when you are thinking like totally thinking, that can make the, the emotional parts of your brain go dim. But you, what you want is a balance. So emotional thinking is, it just feels true. So you, you think that way. Uh, a very common thing I will work with my patients on is just because it feels true doesn't mean it is true. So you can feel like, I feel like he broke up with me because I'm a horrible person. Okay, that's how you feel. That's your emotional thinking, right? Do you believe it? If you step back and you look at it, do you believe it? Well, I mean, I know that he was really, that he's really cared about me, but he got this great job and he's moving halfway around the world. And it's really about that. Not that I'm a horrible person, but it really feels true. So I think he, so I think he really hates me. And then we can be like, okay, just because it feels true doesn't mean it is true. And we help by becoming more aware of your emotional thinking, you can start to separate out the emotions from the thinking part from, or the more objective kind of thinking. I, I would guess another, another example of that is somebody's feeling guilty for some reason, and they're using the feeling of guilt to validate that what they think they did to feel guilty about must be true because I'm feeling this way. So it must be true that I'm guilty if I'm feeling guilty. Right. right. Actually, th this may be a, a tangent, but I find it happens so often is that it helps to really label very clearly your emotions, because here's an example. Someone feels guilty because I'll give you a great example. Many years ago, I was driving home from the hospital. I was working at the hospital, driving home. It was dusk and uh, driving the speed limit through a neighborhood and a black dog ran out in front of my car. I hit the dog. It flipped over my car, mm. landed on the other side wow. and died eventually. I felt so guilty. I can't tell you how, begin to feel how you feel. I feel yeah. It took a long time for me to separate out. Guilt is something when you do something wrong. I actually hadn't done anything wrong. There's no way I could have seen the dog. It was an unfortunate accident, yeah. but I needed to separate out. No, I felt sad for the dog. I felt sad that I was part of this experience. I felt responsible because my car hit the dog, but that wasn't the same as feeling guilty. Like I didn't have to beat myself up for having done something wrong. Right. And that happens, I think, frequently. People say they feel guilty when, in fact, what they're feeling is sympathy for the other person or they feel some they're aware of their yeah. responsibility in something, but they didn't do something wrong. Yeah. So this gets to our being able to really look at what am I what are my feelings and what are my thoughts and how do those relate? Right. That's in the E part of STEAM, right? The labeling and understanding emotions. I think that's, that's so important what you're saying that people can feel all sorts of emotions, but the way that they're labeling them matters. And I don't, in, in my practice, I conjured up a 
a term I use often, you'll probably laugh at me, but I call it a mixed mood state. What I try to get people to see is that one can feel more than one feeling at the same time, but we're not, we don't typically think about that, right, Leslie, that, okay, I'm feeling sad and angry and guilty and shame all at the same time. No, we just usually feel overwhelmed. That's the way we label it. And it's very hard to pick it apart. So I just think that what you're talking about is such an important piece of the therapeutic process. What you were talking about right now is, is huge. When I work with my patients, I say, you know, what are you feeling? And then they tell me what they're thinking. And I say, no, 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 what are you feeling? And sometimes I have a list of emotions and I say, you know, pull out the list. And I say, and what else are you feeling? And what else? And what else? Because we could start to learn that we have these different emotions. And you know what? Sometimes the emotions conflict and that's okay too. Yes, you can have sort of opposing emotions at the same time. Right, right. And that's okay. It's all all fair game. So for people to learn that, I think could be very helpful because it can get you out of your confusion. You know, again, the richer and understanding you have your your experience, the less confused or angry you might be with yourself because you understand better. Yeah. Leslie, how does this concept of secondary emotions play into this discussion about emotions? It's a really good question. And this is part of also, and I'm sure your mixed mood state, uh, which I think is, you know, that's perfect. What else do you feel? What else do you feel? Because what we find is not only do we have an emotion, we have a reaction to our emotion. So if you grew up in a family where there was a lot of rage and it was scary, it was terrifying. If you start to feel anger or you're angry with someone, you might get afraid and your fear might be a response to your anger. Also, you might be afraid. You may not like being afraid and you might become angry that you're afraid, you know, and you could just go on and on. But we have reactions. Point is we have reactions to our emotions. So there's the primary emotion of what's going on. You very often people will only be aware of the secondary emotions. Yeah. So sometimes when we, if someone's talking about, let's go back to the rejection thing, right? I'm feeling, you know, I'm really angry that all I could think of is this did not happen, but I did, I got rejected a number of times from literary agents along the way when I was sending in my proposals <laughs> for my first book, um, <laughs> you know, and That's so you pretty, get the rejection. Pretty common experience. Yeah. Right. Right. This is not really my mode, but it's the example I can come up with in my head would be like, if I got angry, like, how could they do that? I'm such a great writer. And really, as I think about it, not only just feeling angry, but like, Ooh, that hurt. Like yeah. I felt not good enough. Right. So that would be a, a, a common that would be like an everyday example. Yeah. Well, I think the one with anger is sort of the easiest and most obvious one, right? Because typically it's some kind of a vulnerable emotion that people don't like feeling. It's, well, it's vulnerable. It's, it's scary. And so the anger gets projected out towards somebody else and it's not focused inward on the ways that I feel horrible as a person. Actually, with regard to what you're saying, an area where I see it a lot is I work with couples a lot. And not infrequently, somebody's had an affair and the person, the offended party is really angry. They're furious, you know, they're ranting and raving. And then we might get to the hurt and the fear of what this means. And then the fear of, wait, as we get down to it, like maybe the marriage wasn't healthy to begin with, not that it was okay about the affair, but maybe there was something unhealthy. And now it's really scary because the whole thing feels like it's built on quicksand. Yeah. So there's betrayal and hurt and anger and sadness and, it just goes on and on. So A, the actions, what does the actions mean in the STEAM model? So those are your actions, your reactions. So um, your girlfriend dumps you and what do you do? You start texting her all kinds of horrible, nasty stuff. You know, that would be an action or you're 
afraid of getting rejected. So you start texting her, where are you? When are you gonna be back? When are we meeting up? I thought you were supposed to, you know, whatever. Or you start calling her, those kinds of things. Those are actions and reactions. You're afraid that you're gonna get fired from your job, right? Big rejection, especially the more invested you are in what it means to you personally. So if you're so next thing you know, you're working extra hard or you're getting this extra project done, or those are some actions or reactions. So those are kind of dysfunctional actions or reactions that you're talking about that are common ones. I know in your book, you talk a bit about exercise and the things people can be do to be more mindful of the kinds of actions that they would want to do in those kinds of situations. So what would be a couple of examples of that? If you, instead of doing the text bombing, the lashing out, the types of behaviors that are probably not that helpful for them. Sometimes when people come into therapy, if they could just do the basics of taking care of themselves, it's amazing how much would um, go better in life. And what does that mean? That means sleeping well. Gosh, the amount of problems that would be solved if people had good night's sleep. Yeah. It, it's amazing. Sleep is really underrated. It is so underrated. Yeah. Uh, I will say that I had my one experience of my one session cure. Uh, I work a lot. One of the areas I work in is uh, a peri perinatal um, food and anxiety disorders, mm -hmm. like postpartum depression. So I had a woman come in and she was a wreck and I did a history. I'm like, she's a pretty solid person. She has a secure attachment. She was a wreck. I'm like, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go home. I want you to tell your husband that your doctor has ordered you to get some sleep. He's got, I don't care what happens. They got to take care of it. You have to get some sleep. And then you're going to call me in a week. I don't even want you to come back. I just want you to call me. And she called me in a week. She's like, I feel so good. Everything's yeah. wonderful because she just hadn't been sleeping, yeah. which is pretty common for um, new mothers, but really uh, common, yeah. really common. And a lot of times it's complicated by other factors, but with her, I just, she, she had everything in place. She had people helping. She just wasn't getting the sleep. So sleep. Exercise, our bodies are made to move. We need to move. And a lot of times with people, if they have a negative reaction to exercise, I'll just, I don't talk about exercise, I'll talk about movement. You gotta get moving, go for a walk, you know, just move. Um, so, you know, exercise, sleep, eating healthy. Cause let's face it, if you're living on sugar, you have periods of energy, but you're gonna, it's gonna dip. Your energy level is gonna dip. Or, you know, if you're not eating, people who, who only eat dinner, it's amazing how they get cranky during the day, you know? <laughs> so there are those kinds of things. Also for many of us, our lives are so busy and so filled. And I am guilty of that, um, running all the time, that if we don't create space to just calm ourselves, calm our bodies, right? Have the experience of being calmer, that we can get caught up physiologically in that churning and that you may just feel anxious all the time or just not healthy or frankly, it's not healthy for your body. Your body starts to hurt. So having space for that. And that's where people get into doing yoga or meditation or having time to just sit and maybe listen to music, those take a bath, those kinds of things. So I think those are the things you're referring to. Those are actions you can take to help provide more balance or a more stable base to your life. What's mentalizing? So that's the one that needs explanation, right? Sensations, thoughts, emotions, actions. Those are almost self-explanatory. Mentalizing yeah. is a little bit of jargon, but I don't know another way to say it easier. 
Uh, and what it is, is when you can really get where someone is coming from, then you understand their actions. When I say get it, I mean, you understand it from your, your, in your mind, like you could think about it and you understand it, but also from your heart, you can relate to what they're saying. So you can mentalize someone else. So when, yeah, you're sitting with friends, say, and you're at dinner and they're looking at their phones, right? There's a common one. But let's say it's someone who doesn't usually look at her phone and she's looking at her phone and you happen to know that her child is homesick. And so what you're thinking is, oh, I bet you she's looking to see if little Sally's going to be okay. And then emotionally, you can imagine what it's like to be concerned about your child, right? So you really get her, you're mentalizing her. Okay, so that's mentalizing someone else. Mentalizing yourself, people don't even realize how little they do that. That means getting where you're coming from. So sometimes we only look at our behaviors. And I'll give you an example. I was working with a woman who um, would have a lot of friends, but she was talking about how in recent months, she'd get texts, she wasn't responding, phone calls, she wasn't calling anybody, she wasn't reaching out to anybody. Boy, I must not really like being social. I guess I don't really wanna have friends anymore. And so we start exploring what's going on inside. And in fact, what was going on was there was a lot happening. She was feeling vulnerable and she was afraid of being rejected. She was afraid her friends would think she's being ridiculous or they'd get angry with her. And so she was pulling back because of the fear, not because she didn't want to have friends. And so as we explored that, she was able to understand herself and she went from being angry with herself, like, what's my problem to like, oh my gosh, okay, I can understand that. Of course I'm doing that if I'm afraid of getting hurt. And so that's the mentalizing. And the mentalizing opens us up to having empathy to having compassion, to be able to approach ourselves in a, in a more supportive way and to approach others in a more supportive way. So that allows for us to have a more secure attachment style, a more secure in relation, more secure in relation to ourselves, as well as feeling more secure in relation to others, because we're able to think of what's happening inside of them, not just reacting to the, the actions. Um, also mentalizing, it's important you're taking the whole person into account and the situation into account. So I just want to give you an alternate way of thinking. I've worked with women who have been in abusive relationships. And unfortunately, I mean, many years ago, I remember a woman coming in and she said, yeah, and my boyfriend, he was strangling me. He really could have killed me. And I'm like, oh my gosh. She said, mm -hmm. but you know what? He, it was just because he loves me so much. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know he, he just, he just couldn't control it because he looked. So she's so busy trying to have empathy for him. She's losing track of the situation. So mentalizing isn't losing yourself in the other person. Right. It's like really seeing the picture. Like, okay, right. I understand where he's coming from, but I can also see that that's unhealthy. And that's mentalizing myself. I see that I'm putting myself in a dangerous situation. And so that, you know, you need to have that too. So it's not just uh, losing yourself in the other people. Yeah, no, I, I got it. I think it makes perfect sense. We're all, this is all coming back to this concept of rejection. And so if you're able to see why a person might be acting or behaving the way they are, and also look at the way, understanding the way you're acting and behaving the way you are, you can take it outside of yourself and try to maybe be a little bit more objective about what's happening in these relationships with yourself and with other people. And obviously that you know, these extreme examples of, of somebody who's being abusive, like get away from that person. That's not something you need to figure out. That's something you need to get away from. Exactly. But, but the, the empathy, the self and other empathy, I think makes perfect sense. And that's the piece where with um, overcoming rejection sensitivity, 
it's not that you're just understanding in your head because you can understand all kinds of things in your head and not just get yourself to change but if you can understand it in your head and also have empathy for your experience now you can be supportive of a person and and a good example of that because sometimes it's hard for people to get is um if you have a child and your child say failed a test and they're all upset and the teacher's going to hate them they're going to think they're stupid and how horrible this is it probably would not work to say get over yourself your mm -hmm. teacher's still going to like you and you'll do better next time you sit down you know sidle up to your child i know it really hurts it's hard you studied so hard it's okay and you let them cry a little but you know what you are a good student i know it doesn't feel like and then you kind of help support them out of it but not yeah. before you can help really really so that your child feels like you get them because if you if, even if you just try to be positive you're like you know what but you're a really good student you just kind of messed up today they're still going to feel like yeah but you don't understand yeah and so we need to learn just like if you can imagine doing that with your child or a good friend if you don't have a child if you, you, know, you just have a good friend how you would support your friend to learn to do that with yourself not just correct yourself but like i get why i feel this way i get it i have some empathy i can have some compassion for how i'm feeling and i can also help myself out give myself a hand out of this leslie this has been a super interesting conversation i've really enjoyed hearing your thoughts about rejection sensitivity and attachment and then going through the steam model i'm wondering if there's anything any final words that you have for us about bouncing back for rejection or on this subject that you'd like to leave us with it's just my thoughts of sometimes when you're sensitive particularly sensitive to rejection it can feel overwhelming and just to know that you can get through it you can confront it, especially with compassion and self-awareness. You, know, you can be caring towards yourself. Just walk yourself through so you can get through it. You can move forward and you can get to a place where you feel better about you and happier within you and um, in whatever areas where you're struggling with rejection. That's an important message. Wonderful. Thank you. Yes. And there's all sorts of great ways to confront and think about that in your book. So I encourage anybody to take a look at this if they're interested in learning more about the model and how to understand and relate to this rejection concept more. So thank you for that. Thanks. And Aaron, thanks so much for having me on. This is fun. I, enjoy, I really enjoy talking with you. So it's been fun. Likewise, it's been a pleasure having you. Thank you for listening to Mind Tricks Radio. I hope you have enjoyed the program. For more information about Mind Tricks, you can go to my website, www.waikikihealth.com. Be sure to subscribe to Mind Tricks on your preferred podcasting host to be notified of new episodes of Mind Tricks. Please take some time to give Mind Tricks a good rating and review wherever you are listening. It really helps get the word out to new listeners. And please like and share Mind Tricks posts on Twitter and Facebook by following your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan.